Welcome to Unfortunately Required Reading. Hopefully I'll be able to not laugh through this part. Yeah, uh, we've been talking for, what, ten plus minutes? Probably. No, just nonsense. Hello. Welcome. This week we're calling this episode, It's Not a Guide to Ki- Murdering Birds. Yeah, uh, so we're covering To Kill a Mockingbird. Uh, this is not a handbook on killing mockingbirds, which is not an original joke, I am aware. So when I worked at Barnes & Noble, this very sweet girl walks up to me and she goes, I need the book How to Kill a Mockingbird. And I had to bite down on my tongue and just hand it to her and be like, here you go. Because I was a self-righteous dickbag when I worked at Barnes & Noble. I also, like, I think retail does tend to make you that a little bit. Oh, yeah. No, at the, about the first few times somebody starts screaming at you for not being able to find a book that they... A, don't remember the title of, B, don't know the author of, C, don't know what it looks like, but D, knew that it was on an episode of Oprah, you start to get kind of asshole-ish. Yep. Uh, we also have in parentheses that Mockingbirds are dicks. We're going to talk more about Mockingbirds later. Yes. Uh, so, what are we drinking? I didn't realize we have not introduced ourselves in like 15 episodes. No. Hi, I'm Victoria, also known as Tori, also known as I Have a Problem. It's Hello. literature. Hello, my name is Amanda. Uh, I go by no shortenings of my name because they're all bastardizations. And uh, I also have a problem. Mine is uh, the yoke of the patriarchy and also literature. <laughs> all right, guys, get out your bingo boards because we are going to be talking about racism. Yeah, but uh, we do have a drink in front of us. Yay, tell me about this drink. So it's basically like a dirty Arnold Palmer. Uh, there's tea and there's lemonade and there's Alabama style whiskey. And um, what is it in? It's in a mason jar. I don't know that I've ever felt this white before. I don't think I've ever felt this white before. <laughs> and I regularly get my hair chemically straightened. Cheers. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. That's not bad. No, not at all. I can taste the whiskey, but it doesn't hurt. It doesn't hurt. I'm guessing it's all the tea. Uh, we're also eating an 18-month howda. Because when I googled uh, whiskey and bourbon pairings with cheese, uh, they recommended something that can really stand up to the flavor. Uh, so, and we do, I think Howda might be our favorite cheese. I think that might be like the pod's favorite cheese. Especially because you pronounce it correctly because you don't want John Green's wife to come after you. No, I do not want Sarah Green to like lovingly shame me into pronouncing it correctly. She did a really good uh, art assignment on uh, a food life, a food day in the life of a Claude Monet. And it was just amazing. If you've never seen the art assignment, it's it's fantastic, and everyone should watch it. I'm going to have to link that in the show notes. I mean, you might have to. Okay. But, uh, yeah, so we have an 18-month howda, uh, lovingly purchased at Whole Foods, because I love Whole Foods Market. Are you becoming best friends with the cheesemonger now? I, I didn't see her, but we I think we're, like, one interaction away from a meet cute. <laughs> I think- Just walk in, your eyes connect. Hi, what kind of cheese do you have for me? But in all fairness, I think she's crazy, because she's the one that said that the last bacon cheese wasn't that smoky. One that tasted like fire. Yeah, the one that tasted like uh, we were in a pit of smoke. Um, so, as we mentioned earlier, get out your bingo cards because we're going to talk a lot about racism today. And uh, we do need to start the show by saying, if you are a new listener, hello, welcome. I am of color, <laughs> so if I say something that you're like, "Hey, you sound a little white to be saying that," well, I'm just educated, but I am of color gonna go ahead and put that card on the table and just slide that your way i'm pale as fuck but i try not to be an asshole i mean you're the best kind of ally because you're an ally that doesn't try to like quantify it 
Because if you ever have to say, I am noun, dot, 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 but, you're not that thing. So if you ever say, I'm not racist, but, okay, you've invalidated. I'm an ally, but, you're not, ugh. I'm already tired. Let's talk about this book. You're going to be real tired by the end of this. I'm already exhausted. More whiskey. (laughs) Short story long. Jean Louise Scout. Finch is a six-year-old in Maycomb, Alabama, who tells the story of her widow lawyer of a father, Atticus, and the mysterious recluse, Arthur Boo Radley. I need a boo from Arthur. I don't know. Probably because everybody's creeped out by him. So, Scout, her brother, Jem, and their next-door neighbor, kind of, only in the summer, Dill, like to sneak into Boo Radley's house, or around it. Boo Radley has pretty much been in hiding for years, and the adults of Maycomb don't talk about him. He stabbed one of his parents with a pair of scissors once. So the legend goes. So the legend goes. So, of course, because no one will talk about him, the kids in the neighborhood want to go meet him. He, as in Boo Radley, starts to leave small presents for the kids in the tree outside his house, but never shows his face. Which is not at all creepy. This lasts until his father, who is still alive and, quote, the meanest man in Maycomb, um, puts cement in the hole in the tree so that they can't get Scout has a really hard time at school because she's not allowed to read. Um, She learned to read from her dad when she was really, really little. And also with some help from Calpurnia, their housekeeper. Calpurnia is a woman of color. Yes. Atticus Finch, her father, is tasked with defending Tom Robinson, a man of color accused of raping a white woman. It's really obvious Tom didn't do it, but racism is strong in Alabama at this time. Um, And today. I was going to let you say it. Um, people keep accusing Atticus of bringing shame to the town and his family because he's willing to defend Tom Robinson rather than just phoning it in for a man of color. Tom Robinson is moved to the local jail. Atticus waits outside the jail and is surrounded by folks coming to lynch him. Scout recognizes one of her classmates. She's not supposed to be there, but she's there anyway, and says hello to him, and then the crowd disperses out of shame. Atticus Ask the kids not to go downtown during the trial. So, of course, Scout, Jem, and Dill immediately go downtown to see the trial. It's pretty obvious that Tom didn't do it. The marks are all around her throat, and and there's a bruise on her right eye. That's cool, except Tom's left arm was in a cotton gin accident when he was younger. So his arm and that's his left arm is damaged, therefore not being able to do either of those things. Yep. It's also pretty clear that Mayela... Yule is probably abused by her dad on the regular, and he's a total dick during the trial when on the stand, and a really unreliable witness. Very. Unfortunately, Atticus's impassioned defense of Tom does no good because the jury is 12 white men who hate black men. At this time in Alabama, women couldn't serve on a jury. Tom Robinson is convicted, and even though the Yules have won the case, they still have a serious hatred towards the Finch family, the judge, really anyone connected to the Robinson trial. Yule ends up spitting tobacco in Atticus's face. Atticus assumes this is going to be the end of it. Tom Robinson tries to escape from jail at the prison camp, and he feels like an appeal will be useless. He ends up being shot dead, yep. which is really, really tragic. It is. Following this, Mr. Yule is seen all over town, and one night after Scout is in a school play dressed as a ham, she and her brother are attacked by Mr. Yule. Boo Radley stabs Mr. Yule to rescue Scout, Jem is left with a screwed up arm and Scout with a lot of trauma. The sheriff decides to claim Mr. Yule fell on his own knife as putting Boo Radley on trial for a clear defense would be, quote, like killing a mockingbird. Okay, so you always kind of want to know where the title comes from. Do you? Okay, well, a lot of times. 
I'll be watching a movie and I'll be like, oh, that's where that came from. Roll credits. So the reason this book is called To Kill a Mockingbird, other than the fact that HarperCollins probably pulled this out, is because there's a passage about killing mockingbirds being a sin. Mm -hmm. It says, when he gave us our air rifles, Atticus wouldn't teach us to shoot. Uncle Jack instructed us in the rudiments thereof. He said Atticus wasn't interested in guns. Atticus said to Jim one day, I'd rather you shot at cans in the backyard, but I know you'll go after birds. Shoot all the blue jays you want if you can hit him, but remember it's a sin to kill a mockingbird. That's the only time I ever heard Atticus say it was a sin to do something, and I asked Miss Maudie about it. Your father is right, she said. Mockingbirds don't do one thing but make music for us to enjoy. They don't eat up people's gardens, don't nest in corn cribs, and they don't do one thing but sing their beautiful hearts out for us. That's why it's a sin to kill a mockingbird. And as a person who has lived in the South for almost 30 years, I have never heard a greater lie, mockingbirds are assholes. Mockingbirds are assholes. Like, they do not just sit there and idly sing. They will attack you. They also mimic, so they'll sound like car horns. Uh, Yeah, they're terrifying. There is nothing more vicious than a nesting mockingbird. Which is why there's the mocking jays in, uh, come on, Brain, you kill them. The Hunger Games. Hunger Games. There we go. I was like, the District 13 got bombed out. Yeah. Yeah. Like, they're, they're jerks of birds. Uh, this kind of, I mean, this is really a theme, but the romanticization of the South. Oh, yeah. Uh, as someone who's lived in the South, as I mentioned, for damn near 30 years, I can tell you that mockingbirds do a whole hell of a lot more than sit idly on perches and sing. I think the most accurate parts in this are about people being weird, but that's everywhere. Um, also about bugs getting into everything and having to sleep on the porch with your air conditioning. Well, they don't have air conditioning at that time, but if your air conditioning's not working, all your windows are open, you feel like you're going to die. Yeah. It's a hundred degrees outside with like a hundred percent humidity. And yep. you're asking why God, why did I move to this godforsaken state? Alabama's a mess. My grandfather's from there. I, I can say that. My husband's from Georgia and he concurs. Like, I I can say that because uh, there is a bit of superiority between uh, all the different states in the South. Oh, yeah. We all think that we're the best. Now, funny trick about Texas. Only North Texas claims to be Southern. Yeah, we just claim to be Texas in the South. Yeah, like, or just not Mexico. Yeah, a lot of that comes from the fact that uh, Texas likes to probably proclaim that we were a country at one point in time. Every time we can. However, the reason that we're part of the United States is because Texas was not good at their finances. No. They could not keep their government running. No. So they joined the United States with the understanding that at any point in time they could leave if they wanted to. Yeah. And realistically, at this stage, how would we leave? Because I think every... About every year or so, there's someone who wants to raise the flag, like Poncho's Mexican Buffet, to leave the Union. But, like, and do what? Brexit! <coughs> yeah, I got a little uh, Brexit right here in the... Yeah, it's just uh, there. Um, that's for our UK listeners. We love you. We know this is a really, really interesting time. So I have, a, I have a friend who lives in the UK, and we were talking about Brexit, and she's like, why do you know more about this than I do? It's like, I'm alarmed that I know more about this than Almost like maybe it was a problem to have this be voted on by common people and to use a racist language. 
mm-hmm. maybe almost like that was the I'm getting ahead of myself. The South. The South. <laughs> so there are some themes in here. There's, There's at least a symbols, theme. There's at least a theme. I didn't feel like I went through symbols, so we're going through themes. Um, Scout is very big on criticisms of institutions of the time. Well, Harper Lee is. Harper Lee is, yes. Scout is a six-year-old girl that she's yeah, using as an avatar. This is something I, I was talking to Amanda about. When my daughter was six, she didn't talk like Scout at all. I think we'll get into authorial intent a little bit because yeah. we have a rather large elephant in our room. Oh, it's huge. Yeah, yeah. but uh, we'll talk a little more about authorial intent. But, like the whole idea that like this is just uh, autobiographical fan fiction. Uh, you kind of can't separate the Harper Lee from the Scout Finch. So a lot of time in this book, churches, schools, courts, they all get called out. There's also the discussion of, you know, the neighbors being mildly deformed. School won't allow Scout to read or write. She gets a better education from her father. The neighbor's a drug addict. I mean, there's all sorts of things where you're going through going, all these people have this front where they're supposed to look like this is the functional institution of the time, but in reality, none of it's functional. There's a reason for that. There is a reason for that. It's Southern Gothic. So as a liter as a literary movement, Southern Gothic took a lot of the tropes we have from like Gothic horror, so think of like your Frankenstein and stuff like that. But put it on the lens of such like depression era South. So your castles become like decaying buildings. Uh your deformities are those that are more tied to like the land, like an arm being messed up in a cotton gym and stuff like that. Uh, it also does mean that the good people have to be like extraordinarily good cough atticus until we get to the elephant in the room. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's Southern Gothic, so uh, you can definitely impress your teachers if you're one of our few high school listeners, or just really impress someone on a date by saying that. So there's a lot of stuff about cruelty towards women as well. Scout resists the idea of women being a a form of property. She dresses like a boy. She is really irritated with her brother when he talks about women being hateful. Um, she really just hates people being objectified. And I have a feeling that that's mostly Nell Harper Lee. Yeah, that, that feels like a lot of Harper Lee. And I'm especially like the line about a Dill where it's like, he claimed me and staked me as his and then he neglected me. Like, that's not a lot. That's not something that a six-year-old cares about. Yeah. That's not, that's uh, not something that... A child cares about. So one of the things that kind of struck me reading this again as an adult is all the bullshit white tears. Let me let me get into this, not as a person of color. The end of the book where their aunt is sitting there and talking about all these people in this foreign country and about how they as good Christians need to make sure that these people come to the light of God and that they have a normal family with a mother and father. And it's like, that's not how that works. And just talking about how this entire culture is backwards. And it's like, oh my gosh, no. And that's a big thing that you hear all the time. You're to love, bless your hearts. One of my favorite insults is from my friend Kat, which is, it is so sad that Satan has found a home in your heart. That is a great, Oof. that is a great response to somebody who's like, well, you are not a good Christian use that that's amazing um thank you cat i love you um it's out here a lot of times christianity is weaponized christianity is not designed to be a weapon unfortunately human beings are not good at that <laughs> we're like oh hey i found this whole passage 
we're totally going to exploit black people because there are slaves now. The Bible said we could have it. And then you're reading stuff going, oh my gosh, you missed the entire point of this passage. That's that's honestly how I feel about theology in a nutshell, is that it's like you're missing the entire point. Uh, that's why, like, in a weird way, that whole, like, Catholic desire to kind of, like, you're too dumb to read the Bible. Like, I get why people don't like it, but also TBH, we are. We clearly can't be trusted. Because we sure have used the Bible to rationalize a lot of very, like, not biblical things. Uh, Tori, eat some cheese, and we're going to talk about uh, white saviors. So, this is a, a current reading that I think... Um, it feels a little bit like the Romeo and Juliet criticism a little bit, where it's rooted in something valid. Most people can't argue it well. So here's here is it as a black person. This book does very much feel like a white savior moment, like aggressively. Look at this good, pure white man, this Colonel Sanders of the law. Is that not what he is? Beautiful. I know. Uh, this Colonel Sanders of the law here to save this poor uh deformed doing his best negro like it's aggressively white savior and here's where i have a this is where i feel a certain way i think that that's not the worst but it does wear on me because that's still something that black people deal with is that whole like white savior complex of like well let me speak for you i don't need to be spoken for i need to be listened to I don't need a white person to speak for me. I need white people to listen. Um, and that's a problem that we still have a lot of is, especially in these kind of like hyper woke spaces, it's not the amplification of voices of color. It's the, well, here, hold my beer. I'm going to talk for all these uh, brown folk. And that's just not what's needed. Now, this might be one of the purest distillations of it was a different time. Right. And I mean, especially when this novel was published in 1960, mm-hmm. you didn't talk about race. We were getting, you know, everything amped up for civil rights. It was everybody tried to stay in their spaces. Yeah. Um, and you see that in this book too, where the people of color live on different parts of the town. Yeah. Um, they have their own church. They have their own schools. They have their own systems. Right. Because they want to stay out of it as far as possible. Right. Um, something that I talk about a lot is like tribalism. Um, and tribalism is basically, you know, you find your tribe and you stay there. And uh, that gets a lot of flack because it does create this kind of like disunity. So the big thing is like tribalism, like in the LGBT community, that, you know, the bi people don't feel like they're represented well and the trans folk tend to stay in their own little camps and stuff like that. Uh, queer pride has a lot of tribalism. And there's a lot of, especially recently, arguments about it. But it's like, you can't get mad at people in their tribes because they're there for a reason. If there is one universal thing that I wish people understood is that no one breaks off into their own little camps because they feel like they need to, like, because they just want to. It's a need. It is a response to a constant fear that in even in that community, they are not being heard. And quite often, a lot of it is economic, mm-hmm. too. Um, in the United States, if you do some research on this, there were entire communities that were built with the understanding that they wanted folks of color to live there as well. Mm-hmm. White and black, everybody else, you know, like, but when it would come down to 
the government-based loans and bond system, um, they would not give a loan to anyone within that community if there was a person of color living there. Yeah, economic inequality is still a huge, I mean, it's still a huge burden on African-American people. And it's, it's so systemic that you don't even think about it. Like, that's not even to speak about, like, the wage gap or the education gap or anything like that. Like, it's... Well, even in issues of climate change, like right now, the areas in Houston that are most hit and Galveston, oh, well, Galveston's a little bit different because it's on the coast, but Houston is too. Anyway, Houston, a lot of the areas that are flooded right now are areas of low economic wealth. Like Mm -hmm. you are kind of screwed. You can't leave. You don't have the money to move up. People keep telling you just to budget. That's not what we need. And I can go on this for like, 40 minutes. So well, and I'll, and I'll, I'll go ahead and bring up one of the other elephants in which was like Katrina. And oh, people, Because yeah. I had family affected by Katrina. Uh, my godmother, her side of the family lives in Slidell. So I had family directly impacted by Katrina. And the whole, well, just move. Do you understand for a black person that has had that house for maybe 40, 50 years and has been told that if they so much as leave their front yard, that house is gone? But of course they're not just going to leave. Why would they? It's not even just taking in the economic factors. It is a relative luxury to be able to flee. Culturally, there is a perpetual fear that all it takes is you leaving the house for too long for someone to decide to do something reckless and stupid. It's a valid, it's a cultural fear that goes back much deeper than I think people assume. So when you look at these folks on rooftops like, well, why didn't you just leave? A lot of times they couldn't, too. Yeah. You know, it's not everybody has a car. Yeah. Not everybody can afford bus fare from one state to another. Not everybody can walk out when it's flooded up to your waist. Yeah, and we're not even to talk about the issues with different accesses to health care and mm-hmm. mental health facilities. Like, the legacy of racism in, well, everywhere. But especially in America, it affects every single aspect of the lives of people of color, down to the jobs that they're afforded, down to the health care that they receive, down to how they are buried even unto death. Racism is a thing, and it is, frankly, it's exhausting. It's, uh, there was a really, really uh, poignant video that was on the internet that we'll link into the show notes. It's like, do you ever just want to call into work black? Like you can't, like you know, you call into work sick. It's like, oh, I'm not really feeling well. I'm kind of tired from the consistent repression of my people. Like, yeah, I kind of wish I could call into work black. It's like, what are you sick with? White hegemonic standards. I'm like, go back to bed. So that was a bunch of boxes you can check off. There, bingo card. Yeah, uh, <laughs> there's a reason why in bingo and our, we we mold around doing a drinking game, but then we didn't want anyone to die from liver <laughs> failure. Yeah. I, I feel like it ended up being like the room drinking game where you're just you, oh, you you're so drunk within ten minutes. I've played it. Oh my god! Uh, you first of all don't drink scotchka. Is that scotch vodka? Yes. That's like. My Have you pupils. never seen the room? Oh, I've seen the room. Yeah, so you're supposed to drink scotchka, uh, which is scotch and vodka. Both are supposed to be cheap, and you're supposed to, like just. The points on the room drinking game for every time we're supposed to take a drink of scotchka is just 
I think you have to finish your drink every time. It's like, oh, hi, Mark. You have to finish your drink. So it's like, cool. You're just, we're 30 minutes in and I'm on the floor. Oh, Lord. Mm-hmm. If you haven't seen the room. Uh, see it when, like, it goes to, like, Alamo Draft House and they have, like, cool uh, events. You can, like, throw spoons at the screen. Yes. <laughs> um, having met Tommy Wiseau in passing. He's he, a strange vampire man. He's a strange vampire man. Um, <laughs> he's a strange little vampire He drives a Hummer that says surprised. The Room by Tommy Wiseau in the back. I'm not at all shocked. Um, if you want to take a picture with him or have him sign something, you have to buy merchandise from his table. I'm not shocked. Um, he sells underwear. Yes, he does. That is a Tommy Wiseau line. Um, he does have a poster that says, oh, hi, Mark. Mm-hmm. Um, LA Comic Con is a hell of a time, y'all. Yeah, he's great on Twitter. He's Yeah, he also has a show that's on, you can watch on YouTube. I don't remember what it's called, but it's about him running an apartment complex. And the cutaway scenes are ridiculous. Like, I started to watch it, and then my husband got so upset watching it, he's like, turn this off, it hurts. So, we talk about racism a fair amount. Do you want to talk about um, empathy? Yes. So, a lot of what this book is trying to portray is following the line from Atticus. You don't know what a person, well, I'm not going to quote it verbatim, but you don't know what a person's going through until you step into his skin and walk around a little bit. And unfortunately, that's not a Hannibal Lecter thing. John Green also made that illusion that it sounds very uh, Silence of the Lambs. And yeah, it's kind of real. Because I don't, I don't like that illusion. You can just say walk a mile in their shoes. Uh, you don't got to talk about skin and folks. Yeah. No, no, nobody needs to be skinned alive right now. Yeah. And I know where he was getting because he was a dad trying to talk to a six-year-old. But I if, just, you, if you had... A, my six-year-old, she would have been like, that's freaking creepy, Dad. Yeah, uh, I got to the Bolton part of Game of Thrones, so... Oh, Lord. <laughs> Waving the sausage at people. Yeah, uh, so it is really trying to teach empathy. Uh, I will say, I do think... I do think that this book is kind of hard to get empathy as a lesson from because everyone is so kind of, like, demonstrably terrible. Like, that's a criticism that I think I've seen increasingly, but I do get that it is this kind of, like, one-dimensional look at how trash these white people are, but look at how good and innocent this one black man is. Well, you've got Boo Radley, who supposedly stabbed someone. His dad, who's a complete psycho, would not put him in a mental health home, which, at that time in the South, was probably a good In all fairness, Um, where? The one neighbor who yells at everybody because she's addicted to morphine and eventually overdoses after getting everything in order, which I completely forgot about reading this the first time. Because the first time I read this was, got like the summer before sophomore year. I read this year. year. I read this in like seventh, eighth grade. See, that's the weird thing. I was watching this video from this guy from Vox and he was talking about how he had to read it six times in school because he moved. Mm-hmm. So he read it for fun in fourth grade. Mm-hmm. He moved, had to read it in sixth grade. Then had to read it in like eighth, ninth, and tenth, and then like eleventh. And he's like, what is it about this book? Which I will go into a little bit, a little bit farther down. Um, do we want to talk about some of the terms that they use and dual consciousness? I, I think I think now's about a good time as ever. So... I had to stop and text Amanda when I read the line, Black Velvet Negro. <sighs> okay, look. So I have a love-hate relationship with the It Was a Different Time defense. Uh, 
I think this might have to be an instance where, uh, you know what, it was a different time. So one of the things I find interesting is they use the N-word freely in this book. Freely with- and openly and without care. But they use the N-word more to demonstrate how racist some people are. So they use Negro a lot, which is less bad for the time. 15 caveats on that. But still incredibly problematic. I mean... But my, in 1960. I, when I we were it. getting my my grandmother's affairs in order, uh, her birth certificate says Negroid. Oh my god. So just of Negro descent. My grandmother. My mom had Negro on her birth certificate. Like, and this, my mom was really in the 50s, I want to say. Like, if there's one aspect of, like, the history of race relations in America is please understand how recent all of this is. Mm-hmm. Like we had um, one of the first girls to go to an integrated school. She just turned like 60, 70 years old. Hello. So the whole idea of, because uh, you see this a lot now in our current, let's just be honest, hellish times. It's like, well, why don't black people integrate more? Why, why do they still mistrust people? Because we haven't been legal citizens until, for the men, 1865. We didn't have the right to vote fully until, what? Like, it's all too recent. Let's just, I don't have time to explain to all of you the history of the civil rights movement in America. But let's just say it's all too fucking recent. And it's still ongoing. And yeah, and and we didn't fix it. (laughs) Martin Luther King didn't die for our sins and fix everything. It's still an issue mm-hmm. um so this might be one of those instances where the n-word i mean i don't like it i i i've never really been fond of its use i'm i'm one of those what i will say is uh i also don't like it when and i'm gonna go ahead and say a bit of a hot take when black people will use that as a reason to dismiss this book uh, so I remember being in AP English, and uh, I think it was like Huckleberry Finn, or one of it was one of the Mark Twain's, where he was using the N word way too much. Huck Finn. It, yeah, it was one. Of, it was one of them where he used the N word way too much. And, uh, Adventures of Tom Sawyer. Okay, I'm done. One of them. One of them. I think I'm pretty sure it was Huck Finn. Uh, and this one guy, and I'm gonna go ahead and a stereotype, looked like he walked out of a BET hip hop video every day. So this is like what mid 2000s. I'm in high school. Yeah, so mid 2000s. Looks like 50 Cent on a regular basis. And it's like, I'm opposed to the use of the N-word, so I'm not going to read this. And it's like, okay, Malcolm X Jr., calm the fuck down. Because you use the N-word about 15 times just in the hallway referring to your friends. So, like, when you use it as, I'm going to go ahead and say, like, an excuse to dismiss this book if you're a black person, you cannot like it and understand that it was a literal different fucking time. I'm sorry. Uh, Now, for white people, you don't have an excuse ever. (laughs) You never have an excuse. Uh, Tarantino walks this line for me in Django Unchained, where yes, he did set a movie in the antebellum South, but you made a movie in like the 2010s. You just wanted to say the N-word a lot. And I remember in like high school, you would go out of your way in class to read the swear words. Mm-hmm. My teacher made a bigger deal about Holden Caulfield saying fuck than anyone in this book saying the N-word. Yeah. And I just remember being like, really? 
Really? Because the F word gets thrown around a lot and usually in much less hateful ways than the N word. Yeah, it's a it's a verb transitive. I mean, we tell our friends all the time, go fuck yourself. Anyway, um... We do? Sorry, Mom. I tell my friends that. Okay. I don't tell you that, though. I, I wish wanna, you would. I don't want to get hit in the face. <laughs> I know better with you. I can't hit you. You're white, and it'll be a crime. Oh, my God. Can you imagine ang- small, angry black woman hits Lily white, white woman? So it's become kind of a joke with us when we drive anywhere. That I'm the one going to prison if anything happens. Yeah, and unfortunately that's probably true. Like, it's a horrible joke, but, like, it's, at that point it's like a Richard Pryor skit. Like, it's it might be a joke, but it's also just true. Yeah. It's also just accurate. That- <laughs> that's why I try to drive really careful and not break the law. <laughs> Unless it's 730 in the morning. I love that it has nothing to do with safety and everything to do with I can't send Amanda to jail. I don't want Amanda to go to jail. Um, dual consciousness? Dual consciousness. Also known as double consciousness. I like dual consciousness more because double consciousness sounds like a food item. Uh, or like you have a mental disorder. Yeah, so I use dual consciousness more, uh, given to us by William Du Bois, and basically states that, uh, for black people, there is always this two-ness inside of them. That you are at once African, but also American. So you're always let's be frank, a Negro, but you're also trying to integrate into American society. And Calpurnia talks about it a lot because she speaks very differently to her uh, neighbors who are also black than she talks to the Finch family. And uh, Scout's fascination with it, I think, feels a lot like the fascination that a lot of white people have with that, where you realize that uh, black people do have a di- have like really a different life with each other. Now, here's where I kind of don't like dual consciousness. I have, I am blessed to have black friends that are usually kind of on my level. And, and by on my level, I mean of like similar socioeconomic background, similar education levels. And it's not so much that we have a different language with each other. I think so. If I think about like me and Amber, Amber and I are two women of color, two college educated women of color. Uh, it's not so much that we speak in a different language to each other. I think on race things, we're a lot more frank and blunt with each other. Like we will say like white people a lot because you know, we, we do. Uh, I think yesterday I was on the phone with her and I said, it's not my job to rehabilitate broken white men. I mean, I don't want it to be anyone's job to rehabilitate broken, but it's especially not my job. Like I am not safe contrapoints here to rehabilitate broken white men. And Amber is like, that's the funniest thing you've ever said to me. And she's like, I want that on a t-shirt. And it's like, okay. Now I want to make you like an orthodox icon. I, please. Yes. Like, it's not. Not a fixer of white men. Right. Like, it's not my job. Like, I'm not a rehabilitation center for your racism. Like, that's not, that's not my role. But like, yeah, that's not a conversation to necessarily have with Tori. Because like, Tori has enough white guilt. I don't need to add. (laughs) I don't need to add. I don't need to add to that pile for you. Like, I don't need to like. By the way, do you want to talk about an Alabama appendectomy? Oh no! Right, like I don't need to. I don't need to like add the guilt of like the Tuskegee study on you. Like you don't need that. But we've talked about this in depth. We have, <laughs> and I still got my flu shot. I am so proud of you. I need to go get mine too. Yeah, I don't want to die, so please. <laughs> yeah, flu is supposed to be really bad this year, so y'all get your shots. Thank you. Yeah. Um. Please, please get vaccinated. If my family can survive the, dis- the uh, Tuskegee study and I still get vaccinated, you motherfuckers have no excuse. 
So I'm going to give you a brief aside on why this book is so damn popular. Mm -hmm. Um, Other than the fact that it's pretty well written. (laughs) The book was published in 1960. Yes. Penguin, Random House, and a bunch of others started publishing mass markets in really large amounts about Mm -hmm. this time frame. So this book won the Pulitzer Prize in 1961 Mm -hmm. because it had been Mm re-released in paperback. Teachers saw that this was a super cheap book mm-hmm. and it was relatively popular. So they're like, hey, we can use this in classrooms because mm-hmm. you could get it for like 60 cents a book. So it became one of those things where it was so popular in a mass market that schoolrooms just used it all the time. So this is probably why you've read it more than once if you've had to change schools a lot of times. Um, however, according to a gentleman from Vox, and I'll link you to the video, the Lee estate did attempt to shut down the mass market production of this book after Harper Lee passed. A lot of it is because they feel like Harper Lee knew that she was being grossly commercialized. And we'll go into that a little bit about her, her history and her backstory and uh, the tragedy that is Ghost Set of Watchmen. I'm not going to. Okay. I think we have differing opinions on Ghost Set of Watchmen. <laughs> Probably. I think we have. Okay. Um, what else do we need to cover? So, the adaptation of this movie, the Gregory Peck one, is free if you have Amazon Prime. Yes. It's pretty good. Um, Gregory Peck deserves all the praise he got for it. Um, Harper Lee actually really liked this depiction. He really liked him for Atticus. He was also 100% a DILF. Oh, hell yeah. Um, and a lot of what people base their interpretations of Atticus are on are off of Gregory Peck's portrayal. Yeah, like it's one of those interesting uh, things because, I mean, especially if you read the book, like when we were youths approximately 10,000 years ago um you when probably dinosaurs roamed, yeah, dinosaurs roamed freely and humans rode dinosaurs because i was educated in the south <laughs> i want to go to the dinosaur park anyway have you so have you been to the creation evidence museum no i want to go so there's a creation evidence museum right outside of glen rose dinosaur park because there's okay story time brief aside uh glen rose dinosaur park has one of the oldest uh fossilized footprints of a dinosaur Next to it is like a footprint of a human. So creationists for years have been like, this is it. This is the evidence that we have. But like humans rode dinosaurs and like some Flintstones bullshit. It's a whole different like sedimentary layer, but like it looks like it's the same. But there's a creation evidence museum right next to the Glen Rose Dino Park. Wasn't this like an episode of Phineas and Ferb? Yes. But I, I used I went because my dad went to a super anti science church for a while. Oh Lord. Yeah, oh dad Dad went to a very anti science church for a while and uh got to learn all about creationism. I just I've never I don't I try not to be ignorant. That's like one thing I don't understand. Yeah. I just don't understand it at all. Sorry. I dated a guy whose parents believed that dinosaurs were planted on this earth so that we Satan could control everything. What? Um, this was also the same family that, right before what they thought was going to be Y2K, sold their successful insurance business and bought two breeding goats, um, a ton of flour, or not a ton of flour, a ton of rice and a ton of beans. Because they were going to ride out the apocalypse, and mm-hmm. if they should be raptured, then all the those items would go to the people who found them. Do you want to answer questions from our listeners first? I do. That's why I'm pulling them up. So, 
I put out a call on social media to accept some questions from our listeners. And I think we're going to start doing that because uh, diving into the analytics, I think that uh, we stand to have more fun doing it this way. So before we talk about the riveting controversy that is uh, Ghost of the Watchmen, let us answer a question. Which one do you want to answer first? So this one is from Kat K. And it's, are the lessons in To Kill a Mockingbird still relevant in today's racially charged political climate? And how has time changed your interpretation of the characters and their actions? You want to go first? Sure. Um, There are definitely some still relevant lessons. Um, There's a lot about how you really do need to have empathy for others and look at a situation from somebody else's point of view. Because you're always going to be told by society that one thing is acceptable. And then just from history of living on this planet for 34 years, I've seen those things change. I've seen things that people used to get slut shamed for now be seen as, no, this is normal. I have seen, thankfully, people of um, homosexual couples be able to get married now, Um, which I honestly was worried I would never see in my lifetime. Um, I have seen a lot more acceptance because people have empathy. But unfortunately, I have also seen in this current political climate, people take their racism and hatred and amplify it because someone is in power who does the same. And I'm not okay with it. Uh, My interpretations of this book have definitely changed over time. When I read this, I was in high school and I was very much like, oh my gosh, Atticus is such an amazing man. And Scout is such an amazing character. And look how, you know, they're, they're so kind and loving and all this stuff. And then it's like, this is not the norm. And we've already talked a little bit about white tears. and uh, We have talked about white tears. My, my extreme white guilt. My favorite soda, white tears. Can I put that on a bottle? Yes. Um, um, as far as as far as uh, relevant, of course it is. Like, of course it is. Um, I do think that you need to put a couple uh, lenses on it before you really look at it again. Because especially as a person of color, uh, yeah, the kind of white savory parts do wear me a little thin. Uh, because while, yeah, it would be nice to have more Atticus Finches, it would also be nice. More black lawyers. Mm-hmm. More black doctors. So when you talk, uh, John Oliver did an amazing episode on um, medical bias. And he talked especially a lot about uh, the plight of black women when it comes to uh, receiving discrimination uh, when it comes to doctors. And he actually did the one thing that I wish, frankly, more white people would do was, I'm going to yield the floor to Wanda Sykes, who was a black woman and who dealt with this directly, rather than me being a white guy continuing to speak about black pain. And the con- the conclusion of that was, do you know what fixes a lot of this? Because you can't fix racism, is more black doctors who know these signs and know these cultural pressures and know these pains. You know what would help this is more black lawyers. So do I wish that, I mean, I'm going to go ahead and say something kind of raw. I wish we read less Harper Lee and more Toni Morrison. Like, I... I do think that that's kind of how I feel about it is that this is such, it's such an easy way to uh, ingest this narrative because it is very white. So it's very easy to digest. You know, it's not easy to digest beloved. 
awful of it. It's very hard to digest. Because it is so visceral and raw and written from that point of view. So I do sort of, I do almost resent this book a little bit because it is so easily digestible. So I was thinking when you were talking about more Black lawyers, there is a hilarious sketch. Uh, black, what is it? The Black Lady. Hang on. Mm-hmm. A Black Lady Sketch Show. Yes. I wanted to make sure I got the name black right. Black Lady Sketch Show is so good. But there's a whole amazing sketch where they walk into a courtroom and it is two black women of color as lawyers, one mm-hmm. black judge who is also a lady, and then the person on trial is a black woman and they're like, black lady courtroom. And it was, yeah. And they're like, this has never happened before. Right. And it was like, oh my gosh, that's painfully accurate yeah. <laughs> yeah like i think i think so that's kind of where i feel a little bit is I, I i'm not gonna say burn this book it's bad nah. but like yeah i think a lot of its digestibility comes from it being written by a white lady who felt sympathetic because of course she did because think about when she was writing this we had civil rights act and everything like that this is just it this book is practically wet with white tears and to tie it back to current political climate uh, I'm going to go ahead and air some of my uh, history. I don't think I became black until like 2011. <laughs> like, cause I was always, I relished in like fitting white hegemonic standards. I have a white hegemonic name. My hair is chemically straightened. I never wanted to butt up against that like mainstream culture. I was very content with being approachable and digestible and my friends' parents weren't afraid of me because I was a good, educated, light-skinned black person. And I think it was honestly learning about my family's history with the Tuskegee study that sparked anger in me. Because here's the problem with luxury: is if you haven't really, if you haven't really had issues, you don't empathize with issues. To Kill a Mockingbird was hard for me to read because as a child, I already knew my family was richer than Scouts and everything like that. So I even couldn't empathize with this poor little white chick. I was like, whatever, we're better than you. <laughs> whatever, we're better, we win. Um, but I think it was learning the struggle. And it wasn't that I didn't know my history. It was just detached from me. I personally wasn't a slave. I personally didn't have to deal with any of those things. And the parts of my life that I realized were hegemonic and patriarchal and were racist, I just accepted Like, it wasn't an option for me to chemically straighten my hair. It was just, when is it going to happen? So I think in discovering that part of me that has a fair amount of indignation, yeah, I care a little bit less about being approachable. I care a little bit less about appeasing uh, white people and their guilt. Again, it is not my job to rehabilitate broken white men. I... If I hear one more guy on a dating app, oh man, I love black girls. You've already said something racist, so I'm not sleeping with you. <laughs> like, I, I think that's probably how, in this current political climate, it's changed for me, is that I'm less sympathetic to what is a hundred something pages of a white lady uh, feeling sad about the plight of the brown folk while doing nothing tangibly to help them. Hi, welcome to Amanda's Black Panther talk. All right. So our next question is actually something that we were planning to address. Mm-hmm. Uh, Mary C. writes in, did Ghost Set a Watchman change your opinion of the book and the characters in it? All right. So we're going to talk about the controversy. 
I'm going to let Victoria talk about it because apparently she cares a lot about a lot more, a lot more about this than I do. Okay. So first of all, if you get a chance, watch the uh, YouTube video Thug Notes on Ghost at a Watchman. Yes. Because he does a killer job of breaking it down. Um, the very first draft of To Kill a Mockingbird was called Ghost at a Watchman. This was purchased by J.B. Lippincott, but they went under after getting bought out by HarperCollins. So after Harper Lee did like two years of rewrites, they went, okay, well, we're willing to publish it as HarperCollins. Mm -hmm. So it was very different in how the characters were structured, but there were entire passages that are the same. Yes. So they ended up publishing it in 1960. But keep in mind, HarperCollins is also the one that bought out J.B. Lippincott. And they stirred up a whole kettle of nonsense when they said they were publishing Ghost at a Watchman in 2015. Yes. So Harper Lee's sister, Alice, was her lawyer. She took care of her until she died. Yes. Um, Alice was a badass. She took over their father's law firm. Yes, that's where Atticus comes from. AC was very similar. Well, very much based or the basis for Atticus. Mm -hmm. um, after Alice died, her, the junior partner in her law firm took over control for Harper Lee. Now, keep in mind, at this point, she had Harper had, or well, Nell had already had a stroke. She was mostly blind and almost entirely deaf. Her sister Alice had once joked that Nell would sign anything you put in front of her if, if it was from someone in which she had confidence. So many people think that when this lawyer signed this paperwork over to her agent, that she went, I know this person, I trust this person, I know that they'll do good by me. This was something that had been kept in a, I believe, safety deposit box for a very long time. Mm -hmm. It was very different in the fact that Scout is an adult, Jem is already dead, um, her father Atticus in, in Go to Set a Watchman is incredibly racist and basically one step away from attending every clan meeting. Her aunt Alexa has Alexandra has uh, pamphlets uh, Alex sorry has okay. pamphlets all over the house about black people being less than white people. Mm -hmm. Like and then when the character of Scout says, Hey, what the hell is up with you people being racist? You know, they don't deserve this her uncle gives her this whole speech about how you need to accept people as good, even if they have one major flaw. And it is very different. Um, Ghost Set of Watchmen was initially a bunch of anecdotes about her life, and uh, but as a fictional character. And so it's very different. So a lot of people who have loved and embraced Atticus and used him basically as their fictional charge, were furious. Um, my big concern is I think that Harper Lee got taken advantage of hardcore. I think that this was not a book that she ever meant to see the light of day. I don't think this is what her opinions were when she published in 1960. I have a really serious feeling these were not her opinions about the time she died. Um, and so it really, really bothers me because it, I feel like it was HarperCollins' desire to make a buck. Okay. Frankly. Um, I disagree slightly, only in that, to me, at the end of the day, this is always going to be uh, a story written by a white woman doing her best. And for me, even with all this information, 
it's not shocking. It it doesn't it doesn't surprise me that this would be how things are. So it didn't. I didn't ride the Atticus's daddy train because uh, when I read this, my dad had just died, and I wasn't looking for a fictional one. Right. Uh, <laughs> mine I hope not. Yeah, mine had just passed away, so I really wasn't looking for a fictional uh, white dude to be my father. Um, it didn't shock me because I, and mm, okay, a- a- angry black person moment. There's always this little bit of phoniness that I felt with Atticus. That I think that's why I like Law and Order so much is that yeah, like maybe he is just a good lawyer and he doesn't really care. Because I always read him more like a ADA Barba in Law and Order SVU, where like he's just like a low key opportunist and will like. Of course, I care about the gay plight for this case. I, I, and that's always been, like, even as a kid, I had this, like, inherently cynical reading of him. Of, like, this white dude don't care about us. <laughs> like, even as a ch- and, like, now even more as an adult, I'm like, okay, yeah, sure. I buy that. I 100% buy that. And I'm, I'm admitting that, like, my existence has, a uh, has colored that experience, but... The, I think the, the controversy of how it came to light sucks, but I'm also uh, not shocked. It, it didn't destroy Atticus Ring because he was never an effigy for me. You can't destroy something that isn't important. Like, he, his character was never, like, daddy of all daddies to me. He was just... He was almost too good. So, well, if anything, I kind of needed this. I did kind of need this cynical reading of him being like, look here, you little monster. I was just a damn good lawyer. And that's all I ever was. And then, like, die. Like, that's exactly what I kind of needed. Because I'm tired of hell with these, like, white savior stories. It's exhausting. It, 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 it's, it's frankly exhausting. So as a bit of, like, revenge fiction, sure, it's great. It, it 100% sounds like a fanfic I would have written. So a lot about Harper Lee's life ties into the, this book. I'm going to yeah, tell I you that. Not, not Go Set a Watchman to Kill a Mockingbird, just I to mean, be clear. Yeah, I, I think we've mentioned this before, but uh, realistically, can we just say this is an autobiography with different names? Pretty much. Okay. So... Nell Harper Lee was born April 28, 1926, and she passed away February 19, 2016. Nell was her grandmother's name backwards, so her grandmother was Ellen. When Nell, published, ah. <laughs> when Nell published, she had her book published under Harper because she didn't think people would pronounce her name correctly. How do you, how else do you? Um, she was worried people would pronounce it Nellie because of the E. Is that a she problem? hated that. It's oh. like when people call me Vicky and I get violently angry for two minutes i hate being called mandy i will never call you mandy don't do it i won't sing that song to you <laughs> so she was the youngest of four children to francis cunningham finch and which is the mom and ac amasa coleman lee ac was definitely the basis for atticus finch harper looked up to him seriously um ac defended a black father and son accused of a robbery he uh, was not successful and not shockingly they were hung for their crimes Nell and her family were from Monroeville, Alabama. Even after her sudden fame, she continued to spend most of her life there. She spent half of her time in her New York apartment and the other half at most of the end of her life with her older sister, Alice. Mm-hmm. 
She was a tomboy, which was not considered acceptable in the 60s. And people often have commented on what they think her um, sexuality was. I'm not going to comment because it's none of my business. A girl in pants does not equal a lesbian. Thank you. You're welcome. Um, Nell attended the University of Alabama at Tuscaloosa, but never finished her law degree there. Her father financed her studying for a time at Oxford in England, attempting to get her to be interested in the law, but it didn't work out. Um, She seriously had good friends because it was said that after writing several short stories and finding an agent in 1956, she received a gift from a friend that was a year's wages with a note that said, you have one year off from your job to write whatever you please. Merry Christmas. First of all, I I need those friends. Yeah, I need more friends like that. If you want to... Pay years worth of my wages so I can sit and write smut fic all day, please. Listen, I know we're all broke, but I still love you. Um, to Kill a Mockingbird won the Pulitzer Prize for fiction in 1961, which I'd already mentioned. Mm-hmm. There are more than 30 million copies in print, translated into multiple languages. Do you think this book works like in any other country? I honestly, um, one of my friends is British. She's now an American citizen, and she had mentioned that she had never read this book, and I told her she got a pass because she's British. Like, I. So, I mean, outside of a bil- being a Bildungsroman, which do I have to explain that word? Sure. God damn it. So a Bildungsroman is a German term, basically a coming-of-age story. Uh, a lot of books that you have to read as a kid are these stories. Technically, uh, Lord of the Flies is a Bildungsroman. Oh, God. Oh. We still have to cover that at some point. Do we? Jack wept for the loss of innocence. We can weep for the reading of that book. I'm done. I'm sorry. <laughs> I wish there was, like, an emote for the side I just gave Tori. So, you gotta understand, too, that this book is so popular in the U.S. again because of mass market publishing. Right, but, like, because, so so here's one thing I love about literature is how universal it can be. Um, Harry Potter might be one of those British things that has ever existed. Me as a dumb, filthy American can still get it. Because at its core, its storytelling is still around, like, heart and emotions and not trusting snakes. Which is culturally universal. But, like, this feels so... I, I, You know what? If any of our listeners are Yankees, which a Yankee really is anyone that isn't a Southerner, it's just, are you a hippie Yankee or a rude Yankee? A hippie Yankee is someone on the East Coast, on the West Coast. A rude Yankee is on the uh, East Coast. Evidently, I'm a hippie Yankee. You are a hippie Yankee. Have you ever had wheatgrass? I worked at Jamba Juice, of so course. So the answer is yes. So, um, I would love to know what our Yankee listeners do think about this. Because I think, like, this book, is so southern it almost hurts i also would really be interested to see what people in other countries think of this yeah if you Um, are not an american i definitely also want your opinion so i i am curious about that because i I do think that american literature does get a bit of a bad reputation of being kind of hard to understand if you're not american because in the same way that like black literature is hard for white people to get not to bring up toni morrison again but i love her and i miss her dearly like, there's a reason why white folk don't read Beloved. <laughs> I was going to say, I don't think it's that hard to understand, though, but I think you have to want to understand it. Ding, you... ding, 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 ding. Thank you. Okay. <laughs> um, so, funny facts. She lived next to Truman Capote. Truman Capote is the basis for Dill. Mm-hmm. He claimed that the basis for Boo Radley was a real man who lived down the road and would leave things in the trees for the neighborhood kids. It's, okay, is is this just black suspicion or is that creepy? It's a little creepy. Cause I, but, uh, like if I found out that my kid was picking up stuff from the neighbor's house, I would probably get weirded out, but. Oh, a hundred percent. I'm sorry. Like that's, 
Atticus was doing his best. Was he? I don't know. He's a fictional character. Yeah, those kids were by themselves a lot. Well, they were with Calpurnia. They were by themselves a lot. So one of the things that's really interesting is, and you'll see this if you see like Infamous or whatever the other Truman Capote movie was a few years ago. In Cold Blood? In Cold, well, it's the version of In Cold Blood. Um, Breakfast at Tiffany's? Noel did a lot of work research-wise for Truman Capote's In Cold Blood and rarely gets credit for it. It's one of the reasons that they stopped being such close friends. Noel was quoted as saying that the Capote family was as afraid, or it's, it's something similar to this, but she, they were as afraid of the truth as Dracula was opposed to a crucifix. Um, Calm down, Mel. I love that, though. It's a good line, but, like, that's why you... Yeah, I, I, People give me a hard time because I don't ever work for free. So if you ask me to look at your manuscript, I'm sending you a contract. Like, I have to really like you to be like, will you look at this for me? And then sure. It's like, you can tell how much I like you. It's like, if I offer to design something for you, if I offer to help you with something. You have to know your worth. So this whole idea of, like, her being a good Christian martyr and being upset that her friend didn't acknowledge her, uh, to make this about RuPaul's Drag Race, I'm doing an episode of RuPaul's Drag Race, or a Bibi Zahara Benet didn't sew her outfit, but Queen Aja did. Uh, and on the runway, uh, Bibi Zahara Benet was, like, really complimented her outfit, and Aja was just stunned, because she, like, didn't say, wait a minute! Aja made this outfit for me. And it's like, and Aja was just gagged at, well, why didn't you say anything? Like, ho, oh, what did you want her to say? Well, a lot of the drama came from the fact that Capote liked to say things about Harper Lee when she was famous. Well, she continued to be famous and she hated it. He made up a story about Nell's mother trying to drown her twice when she was a kid, which both Alice and Nell were like, no, that never happened. They're very protective of their mother. And so that was another reason that it became a big thing. I mean, um, we also just meant that maybe Truman Capote wasn't a good person. Yes. <laughs> he was. He did have a lot of issues with alcohol. But can we also just say that maybe Truman Capote wasn't a great person? So when the movie Infamous came out, um, Sandra Bullock was portraying Nell, um, which was hilarious because, of course, Del Harper Lee went to go watch it. And she said she could forgive the horrible socks that they gave Sandra Bullock to wear because she was such an angel in her portrayal. Lord have mercy. <laughs> Which I love. Um, there is a really, really fascinating book that um, was written. It's called The Mockingbird Next Door by Marja Mills. Mm-hmm. And she was a reporter from Chicago and she ended up striking up a friendship with the Leaves. And she was really, really nervous about it because she's like, I know how much she doesn't like Writer, or not writer, she doesn't like um, journalists. I know that she's really uncomfortable with it because everything that was said about when she was, her book first came out. Mm-hmm. Um, but they ended up striking up a really good friendship and they she got the go-ahead from the Lees to write information about them. Mm-hmm. And they used to communicate via fax because both Nell and Alice were both so hard of hearing at the end of their lives. So they would fax each other or they would just go to each other's houses because she ended up, uh, Marja Mills ended up renting a home next door with permission. Um, she was trying to find a place to stay. And evidently during the time frame, the neighbor was, had been trying to sell his house for years, but because of the downturn in the market couldn't, it was like, um, 
around 2008, 2010 timeframe. So she was like, I don't want to be creepy. Do you have a problem with me living next door? And they're like, no, you're fine. Um, and Harper Lee really, really liked McDonald's coffee. So they would go get McDonald's coffee together. A thing that we're not drinking today. We thought about it. We did briefly think about it. Um, so unfortunately, she has passed away, or fortunately for some people. Um, she was old. Relax. She was very old. Relax. She had had a stroke. She was not in the best of health. She was living in an assisted living home because Alice was no longer alive. Um, so there you go. I think that there is one theme that we didn't talk about. What theme? Uh, class. Class is a very big thing. I know. That's why. That's why yeah. I mention it. Uh, we'll, we'll wrap up with talking about race and class. Um, there's a lot of class talk in this and you see that also in the South that, um, there is one thing that tends to differentiate people more than race and that is economic background. And you have that with the Yules, especially, and then with the Cunninghams, that there is this immense, uh, disdain for poor people, mostly because it is seen kind of like a, uh, a punishment from on high and it's it's something that still exists in the south so as i mentioned like my reading of to kill a mockingbird was different because i didn't i wasn't in the same socioeconomic classes the finches like money has never really been something my family has struggled for and i've acknowledged very much of my privilege in that so uh if you are one of our uh readers that is still in school you're going to want to talk about class relations and uh, why you shouldn't pour syrup all over your food. That's just gross. So something that did actually happen out here is uh, our mayor, former mayor, Ivy Taylor, got in trouble for bringing up the fact that she felt that uh, the reason that there were so many poor people in San Antonio was that a lot of them basically needed Jesus. Um, she did not win the election that year. Nope. I'm, I'm surprised. Are you surprised? No. And neither did Greg Brockhouse. <laughs> so there are some resources that we used. Obviously we've mentioned some videos that I'll make sure to put in as well. Um, I used the Sissy Spacek audio version of this book because of course I did. Mm-hmm. Thug Notes has a really great one on To Kill a Mockingbird and also Go Set a Watchman. Yep. Crash Course is good. It was produced before Ghost Set a Watchman exists. And as much as I love John Green, the way he waxes philosophic about this book reminds me that he is still, at the end of the day, a white man. Um, Amanda turned me on to a really awesome series called Say It Loud. It's on YouTube. Um, we watched a video on Soul Food. Yeah, Say It Loud is a, it's a PBS digital studio show. Uh, with two black hosts, usually. Uh, they're amazing, and they're nuanced, and they're brilliant. Uh, they talk about a lot of topics that are close to uh, the black heart, and it's just very good. And they do a thing that I struggle with, which is they have a tone that is at the same time uh, sharp and factual without being unapproachable, screeching, and angry. I really enjoyed it. Yes, it was very good. Except for that one cook uh, who... Tried to serve oysters. I didn't like him. (laughs) Fuck that guy. (laughs) As I already mentioned uh, a few minutes ago, The Mockingbird Next Door by Marja Mills was really good. Mm -hmm. Um, There are a couple things that I'll put on here, too. There was one was Harper Lee tricked into releasing Ghosts at a Watchmen. 
Um, there's a video from Vox on why the book is so popular, which I'll make sure to share. Vox is amazing. They're really good and very well-researched and nuanced. Um, and then Wikipedia, I found some stuff as well, and as well as some articles from The Guardian about Harper Lee was um, identified as the writer behind an article on some killings. And uh, it was published without her name on it. Just some vague killings. So, well, it was like the same ones from Jimmy Capote. But it was really fascinating because it got published in the paper and nobody had, was credited to it. And then they're like, wait, this is her writing style. Also, there is a controversy. So if you ever want to act really smart in front of other people, there is this belief that Truman Capote may have written this book. I was going to bring that up. He did not write this book. They've had multiple scholars of literature. People go through and they go, the writing style is entirely different. The word choices are different. Yeah. There's no freaking way. One is a good writer and the other is Truman Capote. Oh, that's a good word now. <laughs> now I'm going to make you read Breakfast at Tiffany's. I mean, I don't hate it. Just Truman Capote. I, I feel the way about Truman Capote that I do about Andy Warhol. A hack artist, but like, an aesthetic goal. Okay. So have you seen Men in Black 3? No, of course not. Okay. I like good movies. <laughs> we watched it. Ew. One of the Men in Black is portrait is Andy Warhol. And he's like, I'm tired of being undercover with these aliens. I've had to paint weird things like a soup can. And I'm getting praised for it. And it was really funny because it was Bill Hader playing the role. And now I can only see Andy Warhol as Bill Hader. Which is probably a true crime. I'm sorry. I'm exhausted listening to that. Uh, but no, Truman Capote, uh, I do love the term that John Green has given me, though, is that, what do you think this is, a Truman Capote beach party? Uh, now I know what the theme of my birthday party this year is. A Truman Capote beach party? Yes! Your birthday is in December? I won't be here. No, you won't be. Anyway. Um. Did you have to read this in school? The answer for both of us is yes. Mm Mm-hmm. I think most of... The United States had to read this in school. Um, they were all sneaky with us, though, and they made it reading the read. I uh, made us read it. There we go. I can talk. Evidently, I've had Alabama whiskey. Woo! Um, they made us read it the summer before eleventh grade, along with the Scarlet Letter, because evidently the best way to get in the good graces with your eleventh grade English teacher is to read books that make you want to hurt yourself. Guns, germs, and steel. Dude, we have to cover that. We do, don't we? No, we don't. Okay. This is our fucking show. We don't have to do anything. Lord of the Flies is short. I'm just saying. But it's also bad. Okay. Do you want long and painful or short and painful? Both are painful. <laughs> no, that's called December. Uh, no, I'm just kidding. It's not. The no. first one's not long. I may change the second one. Oh, really? You yes. you decided to have a heart. Yes. <laughs> Because as much as I love Russian literature, I don't know that I want to force it upon you. It's not that I don't like Russian literature. It's that I'm a human being who will one day die. And I don't want to dedicate my entire winter to living like Rasputin in a cave somewhere reading crime and punishment. It could have been worse. I could have made you read War and Peace or Anna Karenina. You're not helping. Okay. So we're probably changing. What you essentially said is I could have hit you with my car. Instead, I just hit you with a riding crop. I'm still hitting you. Kinky? I do like a riding crop. Anyways, uh, yes, I did have to read this in school. Actually, um, I wrote a weird fan fiction about it, which my drama teacher read and said she did not know it was fan fiction, which is either a compliment to me or an insult to Harper Lee. So? What? The fan fiction? I, I, I kind of want to read this fan fiction if you still have it. 
I can probably dig it up for you okay. because apparently I had a lot of feelings. Uh, so <laughs> I'm sorry for the additional aside, but there is an amazing audio version of Willie of Mean Girls, but it is William Shakespeare's Much Ado About Mean Girls. It's written by Ian Dorchester, I think it is, or Dorcher. I'm sorry if I mispronounced your name horrifically. It's from Quirk Books, and there's an audio version of it. And the girl who's in the, the sequence with the whole thing, I wish I could make a cake out of rainbows, goes, Doth, I have much feelings or something like that. And it was so funny that I snorted at my desk at my day job and then had to explain that to people. But so I will see if I can dig up this fan fiction uh, for $10. You can buy it. I don't know. <laughs> um, but yeah, that was like, uh, that's either an immense compliment to me or a giant insult to Harper Lee. I'm going to take it as a compliment to my abilities to seamlessly add myself into a narrative. All right, then. Hooray. So, we're on social media at Unfortunately Required Reading on Facebook. Yes. Thank you. That's um, my folks who send in questions. I appreciate you. Unfortunately, My folks need to step it the fuck up. Unfortunately, RR on Twitter. Which is Amanda's domain now, and we just passed over 200 followers. Which is awesome. Thank you. Also, fuckboys of literature, please love us. Please, um, desperately, longly. Unfortunately, require. Unfortunately, required. I swear. No um, more Alabama whiskey. No more Alabama whiskey is on Instagram, and then our website, unfortunatelyrequiredreading.com, will give you a link to everything. Yes. Um, you can email us at unfortunatelyrequiredreading at gmail.com. Yes. And our next book is Dracula by Bram Stoker. Because we're gonna have a spooky October. In which Tori has a gift for me that I regret suggesting. I love Russians. Anyway, um, go read a book. Yeah, just seriously, any book. Go read a book.